Coming up next, a happy new year begins with war and peace, I always say. Welcome to the booking. This is Nathan Robertson, humble and obedient. Hoy. Was that me? No, it was me. Brandon? I see this. This was supposed to be the new year. I was seeing I saw this clip where you could hear Tolstoy's voice. We were no going. No way. Yeah. You want to hear it? Yeah. Isn't he just going to talk in Russian? Hold it up to the microphone. You know, I never really felt like I knew Tolstoy until now. <laughs> I, I never realized he sounded like so static. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Was he an alien? <laughs> yeah, I think he was. <laughs> yes, he was. <laughs> drop, drop. <laughs> oh boy, folks, this is what happens. I plan a great show. First of the year, the fifth year of the bookening, I plan a great show. An old bumbling Brandon himself. <laughs> Sounds like something Trump would call somebody. Walks in. And, hey, guys. Hey, guys. My computer is going to go off. Bing. I don't care about making a podcast that's useful to people or that people like. I yeah. I'm going to stuff my face with, with love for me, Brandon. With love for you, Because you didn't really do anything that wrong. I didn't. I was just kidding. My hey, name is Nathan Emerson. What do you guys think about Ryan Reynolds? Right. Nope. <laughs> Not going there this time. Not going oh, there. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> this is take two, folks, because we wanted to give you a quality New Year's podcast my resolution this year positive energy positive energy hard work hard work and great podcasting there we go for you the listener from us the performers my name is nathan Amerson, humble and obedient host that's brandon he's a scholar who's a baller of books i am reading one of his favorite books reading a book that might be one of my favorite books and we got also the pastor who's a master of reading for the fifth year of the booketing jake yeah uh, how's it feel Feels great. Feels good? Yeah. Feeling good? You guys think this- Feeling good. Do you guys think that this might be the best year of the booking ever? It's possible. It's starting out really well. It's conceivable. You warthog face face buffoon. buffoon. I'm not even sure if that's the line, but that's what's come to be. It's not the line. It's just when you look at Brandon, you know, certain certain (laughs) associations come to mind. Warthog face buffoon. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Those all come to mind. No, Brandon, you're a very nice face buffoon. Uh, (laughs) Let's talk about- War and peace. That's what the people want to hear about. Yeah. That's what they signed up for. Yeah. A little war, a little peace. Never hurt anybody. Yep. Little Leo, little Tolstoy. Little Leo, little... <laughs> oh, little Leo Tolstoy. It's like Baby Yoda. Yeah. Can we get a Baby Tolstoy? That'd be awesome. I think if we had a Baby Tolstoy, this podcast would go through the roof. If there was any oh, yeah. author who knew the Force, it would probably be Leo Tolstoy. You think Leo Tolstoy knew the Force? I don't know. He was weird. He understood the force of great writing, didn't That's he, Brandon? Right. He did. And speaking of great things. Yeah. Brandon's pretty great at giving context, which is something that he's about to do. He's a contextual Texan. I am. He fires his guns. They sound like that. Bang, bang. Yeah. <laughs> they sound like that. <laughs> he he lets out a hail and hearty yeehaw. Yeehaw! Sounds like Ugh. that. And then he provides some much needed context for the work in question, which the work in question is none other than War and Peace by one Leonard Tolstoy. Is that his Old full Leonard. name? 
What's Leo stand for? Is it like Liana Von? Yeah, something like that. Zivich. Liana Von Ivanovich. Liana Von Ivanovich. Yeah. Brandon's going to provide some much needed context. Folks, my goal in this podcast is to make, in, in the next few podcasts that we do about this, is to make you read War and Peace. Because I think you should do it. And I don't think you should be intimidated by the length. I think it's worth giving your time to. And I think it's not as much of an undertaking as you might think it is. So I want these episodes to serve as an advertisement for war and peace, as a, just as, just for this great product that I think you should give yourself to. And the way we start, by the way we get there, is via the route of context. We do. And Brandon's about to provide it. I am. Take it away, Brandon. Let's do it. New year, so we may have some new listeners. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't realize that I often, they may not realize, but I often start my context with some bio, so that's what we're going to do. I want to say we probably have hundreds of new listeners, so a lot of people don't. Yeah. I have reasons for starting with bio. I think that an author's biography matters for the books they write. And also it's just fun to know a little bit about them. So, and for someone who was so autobiographical and had so many aspects of his own life appear in his works, it's pretty appropriate to do that with Lev Tolstoy. Yeah. Tolstoy. Lev Tolstoy. Lev Tolstoy. Lev Tolstoy. Lev Tolstoy. So he was born, look at this, this book that I have is A.N. Wilson's biography of Tolstoy, and it's called Tolstoy, A Biography. Hey. <laughs> this guy, Michael Howroyd, said, immense in scope, acute in its judgments, wonderful readability, a most impressive achievement. And for the most part, I agree. This was a great uh, biography. I haven't read it all yet. I made it up through the War and Peace, though. Hey, that's was, all we need. That's all we needed. So he has a nice chronology of Tolstoy's life and times. So we're going to go through it, get us up to War and Peace, and then we're going to go add some color to it. And then we're going to talk about Russia, and then we're going to talk about literature in general. And then we're going to move into the book. How's that sound? That sounds like... That sound like a good plan to you guys? An epic journey. Does that sound like a good plan to you, Jake? I can, oh, tell, yeah. you, I can tell you're focused over here. Super focused. I'm yeah. with you. Yeah, yeah. I'm so excited about that. I don't know that I've been more excited about context, to be honest. Good. Well, it'll be fun. So yeah, he. this, this is actually the first time I'm really looking over this chronology that he gives. But I don't even know why I read the book, because this gives all the major points. There you made. go. <laughs> <laughs> At least he'll keep me on track with the date, so people can't come back and say, oh, he messed up. He didn't One star. He messed up one date, one year. Because mm. mm. apparently the Muppets are the ones who get us one star. Come with the frog here. I hated those guys. Hi-ho, one star. Can any of us do a good Kermit? No, we cannot. Nope. We support the dream, though. <laughs> War and Peace Muppets. That's some. Well, we already have Baby Tolstoy. That's kind of, that's yeah. kind of a Muppet. The Muppets started the whole baby genre of things. I guess Kermit would inevitably be Pierre. If they did the, the Muppets. <laughs> yeah. Nah. Brandon, I or think. Is he like no. a side, he's usually no, a side no, character. No, 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 Kermit's Prince Andre. Come on. Uh, he is all depressed. Miss Piggy's Natasha. <laughs> I think Fozzie Bear. Might be, might be Pierre. Fozzie Pierre. Yeah. He would make a good Pierre. And, <laughs> Fozzie uh, Pierre, I like yeah. that. I think we have to finish ca- f- to finish this out. Uh, Nikolai, obviously, got the great uh, Gazoo. What's his name? Gonzo. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Rizzo okay. the Rat can be his little, you know, one of his lieutenant friends. Yeah. And then you just like, what's Kermit's son's name? The little cute frog guy. Tiny Tim. Yeah. <laughs> but he could be, uh, <laughs> I guess the Rostovs all Nikolink- have to be pigs. Nikolashinka. Nikolashinka, yeah. Yeah, there you go. And yeah, it writes itself. It does right. Who does itself. Michael Caine play though? Michael Caine plays uh, General Kurtzovov. Yeah, he would be a good Kutuzov. Kutuzov, yeah. yeah, or Napoleon. You can have his pick. Uh, he's a good <laughs> well, Kutuzov. Uh, Danny DeVito is probably a good Napoleon. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Especially the way Tolstoy paints him. Yeah. Of yeah. all the characters who, I mean, this, the book is just full of so many three-dimensional characters, and then you get Napoleon, which is hilarious. Yeah, there's like, like 
two or three characters that Tolstoy has less sympathy for, and it would be Napoleon. It would be, oh, what's his name? The Dolikov? No, the guy that... Because even Dolikov gets his Anatole. watercolors. Not, not so much those two. There's a guy that released all the flyers across Moscow. Oh, yeah. Arrest option. Arrest option. Arrest option. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Historical guy, Tolstoy, He's obviously, the wasn't of Moscow. super fond of yeah. him. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, These leaders who are just buffoons, but imagine that they're leading history, but actually history is leading them. Is, is, was that something that Tolstoy wanted to say? It may have been something he had a little bit of a <laughs> shtick trying to get that across. You don't say. Yeah. You know, it is fascinating how many, because we think of this as a faux pas these days, but it's fascinating how many of the great books by the great authors, they're just like, I want to tell you what my book's about. So I'm going to tell you now. Here's what the yeah. book's about. <laughs> yeah, uh, George Eliot does this in Middlemarch all the time as well. George Eliot does it. Steinbeck, of course, does it. It feels like a lot of the authors... They do... feel the freedom to do it. Yeah. It's or almost... they feel the pressure to do it because maybe they're afraid their readers aren't good at reading between the lines. Yeah. yeah. But I wonder if maybe they're right. I mean, they're such colossal geniuses in all of their respects. These I think they are right. I think... Maybe sometimes you just have to step back and say, hey, here's what my book's about. I don't mind it. No, I, I don't either. At all. Although I did skim. You can kind of skim it, yeah. 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 Which I always have skimmed those parts. So. Yeah. I have, I mean, only a few parts of those. He's actually kind of interesting even it's when It's interesting. He's... I find it interesting. Yeah. Well, plus it's like he's such a colossal genius everywhere else. You want to give him the benefit of a doubt when you get to something boring. You're like, if he thought this was interesting, it's probably interesting because this guy knows what's interesting across. And he does make some interesting points about it too. And Charles... I, I think he's right. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, I mean- at least on the whole, I think he's right. Yeah. I think it's super cool. He makes a really great case. Yep. Napoleon yeah. Napoleon wasn't all Napoleon was cracked up to be. No, we can talk about Nobody it. Nobody is. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a certain kind of nasty, progressive well, hatred of great men that might seize on this and turn it into a kind of like, there's no great man that's ever done anything in history and it's all been social movements. So the stick figure version of what he's talking about, I don't agree with. But the idea that the Pierres and the Natashas are the people that actually make history, that's profound and powerful idea i don't know and it's partly true and it also gets to what we've said about the big mythology of genius making in the first place as well that it's true that you have these great geniuses but also it's true that you have to put it in its place in context as well i'm on board with what he said i just think it is funny because it gets more and more frequent and then that's the way well not to spoil things it may or may not be the last 10 chapters of the book he just mm. decides hey hey <laughs> <laughs> let's just talk about this history stuff <laughs> But that's not the uh, man, that ending. We can't talk about it yet. No. I forgot the way that he leaves us with all the characters. And it's pretty brilliant. It's pretty great. And it, when we get into our context, we're actually going to find out, man, there's one part of our context that I wanted to do, but I'm not quite sure I can do all of it without spoiling some things. Just do it. Okay. All right. I'll try to spoil as little as possible. The one who's going to get spoiled the most is Pierre, because there is one interesting thing that happens that we need to know about. And right, so to put this in context, and we're actually, he starts out here. Hey, just, I've had as much time as everybody else to read the book, and we've got to do a good podcast. The point with Tolstoy is not the surprises. That's yes, right. You have, in fact, predicted where everything's going. I'll yeah. just say quite accurately. 90%. 90%. <laughs> yeah, I can, say that, yeah. I can say that with one so character. It just doesn't matter to me. I do think there is one legitimate surprise that'll take you by surprise with one character. Okay, if you want to try to not spoil that for me, great. Yeah. But if it's going to make the podcast less... I'm not going to spoil then... that surprise at all. Well, let me just tell the listeners. So Jake hasn't finished. He's got a few hundred pages to go. But what we're going to... So how we're going to handle that is we're going to do context this episode. Next episode, I think, 
we're going to talk generally about what makes Tolstoy and War and Peace great. And then the next couple episodes after that, assuming we do about four of them, we'll be delving into the book. And by the time we do those episodes, Jake will be with Jake Oldfred. We'll have baggage to go through. Yeah, we got baggage. We got, there's plenty to talk about. So I'm not worried about it, but I just want our listeners to to understand what's going on here. So context, Brandon. So in this chronology, yeah, I'm going to kind of use this to help guide me through this because he starts off with the accession of Nicholas I, who is the one who followed Alexander I, who was the main emperor during this book. And so why not, let's just start off a little bit with where Russia was at the time that the Tolstoys became such a prominent family. I guess Tolstoy comes from a prominent family in Moscow, St. Petersburg, and he had an, they actually had estates with serfs, and he was inherit one of them, Yasnaya. Yasnaya, I don't want to say the wrong, the last part wrong, sorry guys. Yasnaya Pollyanna. Hmm. So, and this would be the estate where he would inherit this and a lot of his educational stuff that he would do later on, right around the time that he was starting War and Peace would be at this estate. Just is the guy that's called Tolstoy in the novel that shows up in random battles and stuff? Is that's that, one of his ancestors. That's actually yeah. an ancestor that and would have so been doing all those things. They, so they actually go way, way back to for where the, the, the first Lithuanian invaders came across the uh, Caucasus Mountains, or however you say that, into the Russian plains and settled there. And so one of the early czars gave one of his ancestors the name Tolsti, which means fat. <laughs> <laughs> And that's how the name Tolstoy came about. It's because it, it means fat. What does the word Brandon mean? <laughs> uh, it probably means fat. Maybe I'm a great, uh, an ancestor of Tolstoy. Not an, I'm a, he's my ancestor. Right. Would that be the way it is? You're a great ancestor. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Maybe, <laughs> Wait, what? Maybe you're time Tolstoy's traveler. great, great grandfather. <laughs> People don't realize we're actually doing this podcast in 1200. <laughs> Wouldn't that be cool? Yeah. We're that'd, be, actually, that'd be a great twist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All sorts of twists. Yep. Anyways, and so these czars would come over and they would st- slowly start establishing themselves as having European influence. And so Peter I is one of the famous examples, and this was in the 1700s. He was followed by Catherine, who was followed by Alexander I. And so Alexander was the third in line of these great emperors for the Russian Empire, in which were gaining property, gaining land, extending Russian influence. But also, as this happens, you know, with the weird Russian Eastern Orthodoxy that was in there, and the weird occultism that was there, just the fierce reality of life that comes from living in Russia. It's cold and people die and it's miserable. There's wolves that eat you. (laughs) And the sort of brutal realism that comes from that started to mix with the European mindset. Were those dudes in my Antonia from Russia? Yes, exactly. That's what I had in mind. (laughs) As they started to mix then with European culture, you would have the French influence coming over, the British influence coming over. And so by the time you get to Alexander I, he was a very urbane emperor and he's pretty accurately portrayed in War and Peace as being a man who was kind of caught between, he reminded me a little bit of Richard II. Yeah. Effeminate, but also wanting to have this... Dignity. Dignity to him. And so, and caught in a very difficult position of trying to extend this Russian empire, but also at the same time be a respected, dignified, European-style ruler. And so this would extend throughout his reign until finally, when it came for him to succeed, or and for him to be, uh, to give over the empire, the empire to one of his brothers, there was a little bit of a war between his brother Constantine and his brother Nicholas. And this would give way to the people who would support Nicholas and the people who would support Constantine in 1825, when Nicholas I would actually take the throne and his brother Constantine would give it to him, which we call the December Uprising or the Decemberist Uprising. I've heard of that. Yeah. And this, this, what this was, and you see hints and bits and pieces of it throughout War and Peace, was where you had these groups of men that wanted to bring European ideals to Russia to help change the way that the legal code was handled. So you see this in Prince Andrei. 
in some of his aspirations, but you especially see it with Pierre in some of his aspirations, which would come cl- become clearer towards the end of the book. And so originally, War and Peace was actually imagined, Tolstoy wanted this to be called like the Decemberist Uprising or something like that, the Decemberists, hmm. not, not named after the band, but... That's right. <laughs> was the band named after them? I think it was named after the Decemberists, yeah. The Decemberist Uprising. I mean, it had to be. I don't know the history of that band, but I mean, I had to have something in mind. And so you had these guys, they were bringing European influence. They really wanted to change. Alexander was a little bit, you know, he had liberal tendencies and he wanted to be that kind of king, but then he also had this on again, off again relationship with Napoleon. And then finally Napoleon would, that would all come to a head when Napoleon decided to invade in 1812, because someone told him that uh, they wanted to accept his passport. <laughs> so Napoleon was like, okay, fine, I'll come in and I'll invade you. You'll, and, it, and we'll talk more about that. I mean, it really was a disaster. Let's just talk about it now. Yeah. Why not? We'll get to Tolstoy in a minute. Just we'll provide yeah, some of the it's background. It's nice to have the background. Yeah. yeah. And so, I mean, in War and Peace, you can see all the things that were happening. Napoleon took the throne in France after the tumultuous years of the revolution. He established himself as an emperor, even though they had lopped off the heads of the prior emperor, which, I mean, the irony there is pretty rife. But he was like the emperor of the people, as opposed to being a king that had uh-huh. the people's concerns weren't at the king's heart. But Napoleon had the people's concerns at heart. Just like Donald Trump has our concerns. And what this meant is that, yeah, what this meant is that he was going to spread French ideology across the world. And so he went and he invaded Austria and Prussia. And you can see the wars of Austerlitz in this early parts of this book, where all the kingdoms of the world tried to come and stop Napoleon, but it seemed like nothing could stop him. He was just fighting and winning battle after battle. And I think a lot of uh, Tolstoy's observations about just how the chance was behind it and not Mm -hmm. so much Napoleon's genius pretty profound and people tend to agree with him because this all came to a head when Alexander and Napoleon kind of made friends, but then things fell apart in 1812. And like people looked to the heavens, you had Halley's Comet, which was going across the sky. They saw these Mark omens. Mark Twain was being born. That's right. You had That's all right. these omens that were passing overhead. And so people realized this was going to be a profound year. And so Napoleon invades Russia. There's the great battle of Borodino, which Kutuzov insisted was a victory, but actually led to the Russians taking Moscow. But you mean the French, French, the French taking, taking Moscow. Yeah, <laughs> the sorry. Russians finally took Moscow. <laughs> yeah, they finally took Moscow. And Napoleon went there. They stayed for a while, but then they abandoned it. And by the time they made it back to France, because of the brutal Russian winter and because of the little skirmishes that would happen between them and the peasants, the people of Russia were just fighting and killing them. And it was just awful. By the time they got back, historians project that he lost up to 85 to 90% of his forces. Wow. And it just destroyed the French army. Mm-hmm. And it's like it's happened twice in history now. Hitler, the same thing happened to Hitler. Yep. When he uh, got involved in a land war in Asia. That's what I was yeah. thinking. And so the classic it, blunder. And it was, but the devastation on Russia was awful too because they lost like 1.5 million people as well. It was just awful. But Russia just is so huge. It has these people that it can just throw at this sort of thing. And it's awful. But it's. And they had the advantage of defending their homeland. That's right. Mm-hmm. And you see that in play out throughout this book in that in the end, the Russians were in the right because they were protecting their home. Yeah. Well, you, nine times out of 10, you're going to pick a, a man over a woman in a fight. But if the woman's the last thing between her and her children. Yeah. Watch out. He, he may still take the man, but she's <laughs> going to do some real damage. You better be. Well, and you see this play out in history. I mean, the American Civil War drug on as long as it did because the North invaded the South. Yep. And the Southerners fought tooth and nail to keep them out of there. And the tide turned when the South decided, well, we're doing well, so we may as well invade the North. And then guess what? The North were going to do the exact same thing. They were going to protect their home as well. And so, yeah, it just 
when you have that sort of fierce spirit of the people, which Tolstoy continually points to as being the unknown that historians don't pay attention to, yeah, then it, it really matters. And I mean, it's true. Like you have the spirit of the troops, like this leader that can inspire the spirit of the troops, but whether or not they feel like they can be brave that day or whether or not they're going to run away makes and shapes history. And so that happened. Everybody fled Moscow. They went to St. Petersburg and then Napoleon left and Alexander was seen as the great savior of Russia. And so he then would die, like I said, uh, and give over the reign to his brothers. There would be this brief battle and skirmish, but then you'd have the Decemberist uprising where people were trying to continue sort of that Europeanization that Alexander had started Mm -hmm. and had not put out himself, even though he wasn't quite the leader to ever actually establish any of this. He would like encourage free thinking, but never actually have the uh, will. Guts. <laughs> the guts, yeah, to do it. And so then he would give it over to his brother, Nicholas I, who then uh, was a pretty hard-lined ruler in the sense of the old Catherine the Great and Peter I, who were very brutal rulers. And Nicholas I would put down the Decemberist uprising. He would send most of those guys either to Siberia or executed them. And he established the KGB. Mm-hmm. And that is who Nicholas I was, and that's who... Tolstoy was born under his rule. Tolstoy, according to this guy, did have an uncle who f- was part of the Decemberists and was sent to Siberia. And so as a young child, just memories of him would inspire him, would give him these dreams and stuff of old Russia. And of course, you had then this mythology of the great war that happened, the great invasion, kind of like that happened in the South in America, where it just haunts their memory mm-hmm. of the French invading yeah. and it becomes a part of the national mythology. And so, of course, for a young boy whose family was so involved with this, whose family was involved with the December Stop Rising, for a young boy who would, was so tormented by his own lusts and greed as a young man that he really didn't know how to come to terms with it and make sense of it, for that sort of young man, yeah, he's going to mythologize this past and want to write about it. And so originally, War and Peace was intended to be about this person who was looking back on the December Stop Rising and remembering it. And then when he started to write about it, he realized, well, I can't do that unless I go back and I explain how the December Stop Rising took place in the first place, which means I need to go back to Napoleon. And he's like, well, now I have this cast of characters I've created. I kind of just want to spend time with them. And so he writes this book where you never get to the December Stop Rising. <laughs> but <laughs> That's a very Tolstoy thing to do. Yeah. And I was yep. going to end, I was going to end with this, but I'll just go ahead and say it. The, and this will be the spoiler. So at the end of the book, you have Pierre who goes to Moscow to talk with people. Mm-hmm. What he's hinting at is that Pierre will be instrumental in the Decemberist uprising and that Nikolashenko will go with him Mm. and that they will both, that's, that's both of their fates, his to be a part of that. And so it's kind of a sad, bittersweet ending. Mm. But part of the brilliance of that move is you're supposed to then look at Pierre as a victim of this awful reality of what would happen to the Decemberists. And it makes you sympathize more with it. It makes this historical moment that more powerful for you. Because you realize Pierre, this guy who's just, he likes to think about these things and doesn't really think about the consequences of them mm-hmm. to get wrapped up into it and destroyed because of it. So that's the hint and suggestion at the end of War and Peace is mm-hmm. that things are not going to go happily for the Bezuhovs, which is kind of sad. So a little bit more historical background then. Um, it is important to realize that Moscow was considered like the holy city when Napoleon invaded and he kept thinking of, I have to get there. It's just like this mythological city. It had that aspect even in Russia at the time. And so it was a very conservative, very tight-laced city. And then St. Petersburg was the urbane center where you had all the theaters, you had all the Europeanization going on. And so these two cities, which are fundamental to war and peace, 
Yeah, you need to understand that that's kind of what they are. So when you go to Moscow, you don't really have the balls. Or if you do, they're going to be more like the grand balls where um, things are much more dignified and respectable. Mm-hmm. When you go to St. Petersburg, that's where the parties are happening. Mm-hmm. So you can throw a bear with a policeman attached to its back into the river in St. Petersburg and kind of just have a slap on your wrist and stuff. And mm-hmm. so those are kind of the two care. It's kind of like the difference Everybody's between gonna pa- talk- Paris and London. Go yeah. ahead. I was going to say everybody's going to talk much more in French. Yes, that's right. And you're going to have the salons where people go yeah. and they, you know, talk about, and they gossip. That's all it is. It's this guy, and you have all the fake nonsense that happens. And um, what is with the dominance of French culture in particular? I get that European ideals are kind of. It's because percolating. it was seen as, I mean, this was before Britain really future. became. But so France it was is the, the empire. Yeah. Britain wouldn't have its dominance until later in the 1800s. Really, in the early 1900s, late 1800s would be British dominance. But like the cultural center, the thing that really inspired people was France. Because people want to view Napoleon as a villain of history, what people fail to do is give Napoleon the credit for really, I mean, in a lot of ways, Napoleon is the founder (laughs) of Western ideals in like Germany isn't Germany unless Napoleon does what Napoleon does. The, uh, The rule of law actually doesn't spread and work its way down into the nooks and crannies of especially Eastern Europe if Napoleon doesn't come and conquer and institute the Napoleonic codes. Mm -hmm. And for all that you can say bad about Napoleon, Napoleon does did leave in a lot of ways a positive legacy in a lot of countries, despite the devastation of it all, which is what Napoleon, you know, would have wanted you to think is that he He's going to come and bring... We provide order and infrastructure. Order, and, and, order infrastructure, well, yeah. rule of law, peace. You have that great moment when he conquers Moscow and he's imagining what'll happen once he gets... Have you made it to that part yet? And so he, Napoleon's imagining to himself all the lords and ladies being brought to him. And he's like, look, I'm bringing you this Napoleonic code. I'm bringing you freedom. I'm bringing you this, yeah. um, what you've wanted. To do for Russia what Alexander doesn't have the guts exactly, to Exactly, yeah. That's what he's thinking. Exactly. I'm yeah. going to... Which we're going to get tol- rid of what what the uh, the abolition of serfdom across Europe. Mm-hmm. So much of that is just Napoleon, mm-hmm. and why serfdom continued to exist in Russia is was one of the last places where serfdom fell, and which I think led to the communist uprising taking Russia. You could make a really strong case that communism rose in Russia because serfdom was never abolished mm-hmm. by Napoleon. Mm-hmm. Napoleon never made it that far. Yeah. I don't know. I'm. I'm only a history minor, but... <laughs> no, I think that's fair to say. And that's the other thing that I wanted to talk about was the social order in Russia. And it's important to realize that you had these serfdoms and you they were all under these nobles who some of them lived on their estates, some of them didn't. Some of them treated their serfs well, some of them didn't. Not all of them were fortunate to have a Pierre or an Andre as their ruler. Some of them had awful people as their rulers and were mistreated. And it was ex- almost exactly like American slavery in the sense that... Some of the, sometimes the counts would take advantage of their serfs, and Leo Tolstoy himself had many relationships with serfs that were under him. Children, children by yeah. his serfs. Yeah, children by his serfs. Yes, yeah. You want a serf to be your mistress? You take her. You want to say that you are contributing to the cause when Russia's at war? You send a thousand serfs, yep. or five hundred, or a couple hundred serfs to go fight in your stead, in your name. And it's awful, and Tolstoy would be ashamed of it. I mean, when he gets married to Sophia later, he would make her read his diary. And this guy here says it was like some perverse sexual gratification making her read his diary, which means that 
he has a lot of Freudian stuff in mm-hmm. this, which is just like, it's so ridiculous because I'd, I guess the guy never really read Anna Karenina. I think right. Tolstoy really was ashamed mm-hmm. yeah, because if you read the same thing Levin happens does. to Lev. Yeah, yeah, he's horrified that he has, but he feels he has to do this. It's about yeah. his conscience. And yeah, it's catharsis. What, it, yeah, he wants yeah. catharsis for his conscience. He's not really considering. He's being it is still selfish. Kitty, yeah. Because it's about catharsis for his conscience and not about considering. What's good for her. What's good for Kitty. <laughs> yep. But yeah. I think that's how Tolstoy understood himself. Pretty, yeah. pretty relatable and not. Absolutely. Not necessarily founded in deep-seated perversion <laughs> yeah yeah that frustrated me about this yeah. biography but there's useful stuff in it as far as the actual facts and when this guy's not trying to interpret things for us because he also thinks i mean he goes into the fact that maria tolstoy's mother died young and that then tolstoy had a mother fetish the rest of his life man just give us the facts yeah. that's the problem yeah. with all of austin stuff is they want to constantly all they do is interpret because there's about yeah. five facts that we know so that's so and you would have the people that are represented in War and Peace, these these noble class, they were actually a very small percentage of actual Russian life at the time. And the majority of the people were either working class or they were serfs. And so we get a small picture of an act- of what Russia was like. But part of Tolstoy's genius is his ability to take that and still make it feel like reality to us. This isn't some world that we don't have access to, but these are people that we can relate to. That is what we're seeing a picture into. It's um, like Austin, you don't really see the courtly class. You know, you don't see the people who are around the king. Mm-hmm. But Tolstoy, that's pretty much all we're seeing are the people who do have access to some extent to that class. Mm-hmm. And so it's one step above Austin, not in craft necessarily, but in yeah. What, what Tolstoy, I mean, a lot of the difference between Tolstoy and Austin, I mean, so much of War and Peace feels like Pride and Prejudice, but Tolstoy, he was able to experience the full range of Russia. Yeah. He moved in every single circle there was to move in. That's right. And Austin was very limited in her experience. She brought similar observational powers to a much, much, a much smaller, smaller scope of range of yeah, society. Of humans, reality, yeah. And so let's talk about why that was a reality for him. Let's do his bio real fast. Mm. Tolstoy was born three years after the December uprising. He was born in 1828. Like I said, his mother's name was Maria and she died young, but she came from a very long lineage of noble families. And his father came from kind of a noble family that was also kind of dying at the time, the Tolstoys. (laughs) They married out of convenience, and then his mother died young. And we don't know a whole lot about her, except that she is most likely very much in Tolstoy's memory and from the stories that were told to him, like Princess Maria, this book. Timid and religious Mm. and sweet. But one of the brilliant things, and we'll talk, I'm sure, about this, is the fact that and I've, been, I've talked to you some about it, is that uh, even with these characters that Tolstoy obviously has a love for, he still lets her be angry. He still lets her have these eh, problems. He mm-hmm. still lets her have depth to her character. It doesn't, it doesn't just make her into an angelic being. No, you don't catch Tolstoy stacking the deck very much at all with his characters. Yeah. But like I said, he grew up at Yasnaya Pollyanna for a while. His grandfather was kind of a strict old man and most likely um, old Prince Bokonsky is based on him, the angry prince. And Andre is most likely based on his father, who also died when he was fairly young. Yeah, in the 1830s, they moved to Moscow, and so they would leave Yasnaya Pollyanna, but he would continue to go back to and have a lot of his childhood memories formed by this. And Yasnaya Pollyanna is the basis, most people think, for Bald Hills and Orotno, the Rostov estate that they had to give up. And so a lot of these childhood memories would come back and 
be foundational for Tolstoy. He was very close to his brothers. In fact, they had an anthood. They called themselves the Ant Brotherhood. He and his brothers, Dmitri and Sergei. And just a little background, Dmitri would later grow. He was very, you haven't read Brothers Karamazov. He's very much like one of the brothers in that book who's very um, religious and very otherworldly in the fact that he doesn't give himself to the lechery that the other brothers would. But then he would die very young because he would become disillusioned with life. And so he died in the arms of a prostitute um, <laughs> of tuberculosis. And he, he was actually the basis for Levin's brother. Levin's brother, yeah. And uh, Anna Karenina, yeah. that sort of relationship that you would see. I mean, Anna Karenina is very autobiographical in many ways for mm-hmm. Tolstoy's life. Kitty's based on Sophia, believe it or not. There would be some upheaval that they would have. Uh, he, his guardians had a way of dying. <laughs> so he would go and he would live with his aunt, Alexandra, and she would die. His father would die. His mother would die. And so all these people who were kind of foundational to his life as parental figures all died before he was grown. And so there was, even though he had this, yeah, he had the solidity to his life with like, so when his father died, they, they split up all the estates and actually Tolstoy being the youngest was given Yasnaya Pollyanna because it was like the youngest's birthright to get their home site. Hmm. And so he was given that. They had to split up the serfs. And so he had like 300 serfs at the time. Like to have a thousand serfs meant you were like really wealthy. To have less than a hundred meant you were poor. And so he was right kind of in the middle between, so like the Rostovs, he's kind of in that class of person. He would go and he would study at Kazan University briefly. He would try to study law, but he wouldn't do very well. He wasn't a good student because he was given to lechery from a young age. What do you know about that? And in 1842, at the young age of 14, I think that makes him right. I'm doing the math right. His brother took him to a brothel and he lost his virginity. And he felt a great sense of shame about it. And according to this biographer, and this is actually based on Tolstoy's letters and then the later relationship with Sophia, he would always feel a kind of shame and disgust at his sexual appetites, which would just really drive him, but also he would just hate and abhor. And you see that in other characters as well, like Pierre with, he tells the um, Mason, what's his one weakness? Like what's the thing that drives him and to be worldly? And he says, women, women and drinking, I mm-hmm. think is what he says. Uh, so he continue after he gets out of the university, he spends some time in St. Petersburg with a relative. He starts to read pretty uh extensively especially stern have you ever read any lawrence stern he loves tristram shandy and a sentimental journey those sorts of books and those really those begin to make him think that maybe he can be a writer and his aunt also encourages him to potentially be a writer and so he starts to think about that in that in that direction and so in 1851 he starts writing what would become known as childhood which is his reminiscences on his childhood but nobody actually trusts Everybody thinks it's kind of just make-believe. It's him trying to mythologize his own past. But by 1852, this was when he would have been like in his early 20s. He is beginning to publish some stories and stuff like that. And 1854 is when he goes with his brother to Crimea. And this is in the Crimean War. Do you guys know anything about the Crimean War? The Crimean War was, this was under Nicholas, who we've already mentioned. Um, So it was in Turkey. The old Ottoman Empire was beginning to crumble. And so Russia saw this as an opportunity to both expand their frontier and to also just take some control, which they felt was their right because of ties to the Ottoman Empire through Eastern Orthodoxy and stuff like that. They just felt like they should have some right to go and have some control over what became of the old empire. And so they went in, France and England and some other countries decide that no, Russia actually doesn't have a right to that. And so they come over and they decide to fight them. And it becomes an extraordinarily brutal war that was pretty traumatic for Russia even though we don't know a whole lot about it as Americans. 
Apparently it still has like sort of a mythology, even in the minds of Brits and in the minds of the French as this war where it was awful. The, the conditions were awful. Like, and so Tolstoy was present at the siege of Sebastopol and he would actually write the Sebastopol sketches later on based on this. But what it did give Tolstoy was some actually firsthand experience of war and fighting. And what he came to realize, I could read some passages, but basically the gist of it, what he came to realize is that what we're told about battles versus what it's actually like to be in a battle are two very different things. Mm -hmm. That what historians tell us about battles are the conclusions they draw after the battles have taken place. What actually happens in battles are confusion, leaders either being heroic in the moment or not being heroic in the moment, men either being heroic in the moment or not being heroic in the moment. And it has less to do with one general sitting in a hill than seeing it does, everything, seeing everything than it does and making with, strategic chess moves. Yeah. than it does with the actual smell of blood and guns, uh, you know, cannon smoke and the sounds of the cannons and the awful fear. And then the sudden courage you feel. And so the stuff that like Nikolai goes through when he first charges with the Cossacks or that Andre goes through in the battles that Pierre experiences, mm -hmm. these are drawn directly from experiences that Tolstoy had during the Crimean war, realizing that this is nothing like what people have told us it's like. This is not like what even Homer tells us it's like, right? When you get down to it, it's mundane and also not mundane at the same time. Mm -hmm. And that's what he wanted to capture in his books. And so actually, it reminds it's mundane, me- mundane, it's prosaic, it's surreal. And it's, it's awful. It's horrifying. I mean, so like the stuff that happened at Borodino in the Napoleon invasion, apparently that's like one of the worst battles. It was just awful. Mm -hmm. And even Napoleon admitted that later. He's like, the, the carnage that happened there, it's just mind boggling. But Tolstoy got to see this firsthand to an extent. It would influence the war passages in this book. And so like, you know, a lot of like World War II vets would go and see Saving Private Ryan and say, that's like the closest I've ever felt being in that war. Mm -hmm. There would be people who would go and they would read Tolstoy and say, that's more accurate than any historian I've ever read. It's like, it's almost like he was at the Battle of Borodino. It's like, that's what it was like to be there. It's like all these other guys, they don't know what it was like, but Tolstoy, he captures it for us. And so like one of the passages, and I felt this too, one of the passages that horrified me were when the guys were trying to get across the frozen pond oh, yeah. and they were being fired on by the French. Mm -hmm. And then there was like a wet thud of a cannonball hitting someone and everybody panics and tries to get across the ice and it's breaking and the mm -hmm. cannons just firing onto these guys and just the horror that you must have felt at the time. It's like- Later on, the guys would try to convince themselves that they had glorious action. Yeah. But it's like in the moment. And yeah. And so this is stuff we've seen. Like this is what we thought was great about C.S. Lewis. Mm -hmm. It's just this real reality to war. Yeah. Reality to what fighting is actually about. He would get that experience from the Crimea, his Crimean experiences. During that time, he's continuing to publish and he's gaining a name for himself. His early writing isn't really anything like what War and Peace would be. It is much more like uh, what you would expect a young man to write. It's much, it's actually sounds a little bit like Dostoevsky. It's very psychological. It's very self-serving, but a lot of people still saw literary potential there. In 1856, he leaves the army and he goes back to St. Petersburg. And that's when he begins a long-standing relationship with one of his peasant serfs wives, Axinia Bazakina. He actually fell in love with her. As he, that's like a serf that he would actually, um, that's who he confessed to Sophia of having had this long adultery, adulterous relation, well, not adulterous at the time, fornication, fornication. Mm -hmm. fornication with. So, but during this period, he's continuing to gain, not notoriety, but just fame as a writer. And so people in St. Petersburg are talking about him. He's becoming famous and known for being an exciting new voice. Turgenev, who wrote Fathers and Sons, 
kind of took him under his wing, kind of didn't. They had like an on and off again relationship. Another young writer who was on the rise, Dostoevsky, would kind of say some favorable things about him, but also say some things that were obviously just out of jealousy. And that's kind of the critical stance on it at this time, because when War and Peace would be published in the 1860s was the exact same year that Dostoevsky would publish Crime and Punishment. And so these guys, it's, I think it's f- fascinating that they were writing at the same time. I think we often forget that they are contemporaries to one another. Mm-hmm. They're like Dickens and um, Wilkie Collins. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which one's Wilkie Collins? <laughs> oh, I wonder. <laughs> the other thing that is important to remember, we've talked about his lechery, but the other thing that he was doing actually during the Crimean War, more than fighting, was gambling everything away. And this was a bad habit of his since he was young. And he was a gambler and a womanizer. And so he went to stay with Turgenev once and he, Turgenev talked to this other guy saying, I don't know what he does. He like stays out until early morning and then sleeps till 2 PM. And then he came to St. Petersburg and he would go to all these salons, but really he was kind of like Pierre. He was, but less sincere about it. People said that he seemed like he was just always putting on a show. Like he was being theatrical. He wanted to appear one way. And so one thing he would do, apparently, is he would go to these salons with all these other famous writers and he would talk about how bad Shakespeare was. <laughs> <laughs> what and, a poser thing yeah. to do. <laughs> <laughs> and he never, he, nobody really thinks he believed it, but he would talk about how awful Shakespeare was just to get a rise out of everybody else. Huh. So he could just leave. It was during this period in the 1850s that he would take a brief stint and go travel Europe. And he would meet Matthew Arnold, for one, who was at the time doing a lot of work with British schools. He would take some of these ideas from Arnold and he would apply them to his own work in trying to revolutionize schooling in his, for his Russian serfs. And so the point being that is during this period, this 1850s, that we begin to see him change and become more concerned politically. He's not so much this insecure, lecherous guy, but he's beginning to get some, he's beginning to grow up. He's beginning to mature. He's beginning to be concerned for what he's going to do and how he can have an effect on his serfs and on Russian life. Mm-hmm. So he meets Arnold, he meets another guy named Pruthon, who was like kind of an early semi-Marxist, but not really a Marxist. In fact, apparently Marxists hate him. But what's important about Pruthon is that he, he was mentioned once in War and Peace, but he wrote a book, a historical book called War and Peace. And so it's obvious that Tolstoy took some influence from this guy. Tolstoy would go back to Russia and he would begin to become very involved with his estate. Apparently one of the things he did was he wanted to revolutionize education. And even though he went into the classroom and he would try to teach his masters and his teachers what to do, apparently he ended up just teaching like for hours and the kids just loved him and he would just sit there and teach. And that's like something that he found that he was very natural and gifted at. And so he loved that. And so that's when he begins to like Levin and Pierre and Andre all have these moments where they turn to their serfs and become concerned with the people that are under them. This is when he turns towards them. All right, we're almost to the end of this with his bio. One other thing that's happening during this period is he's thinking about getting married. And there's this family of three daughters, and one of them, the mother wants him to marry, Liza, but he becomes very attracted to the younger one, Sophia. And so even though he's supposed to marry this other one, eventually he proposes marriage to Sophia. And she's like, they barely know each other. They kind of actually don't like each other, but they're extraordinarily attracted to one another. So there is a moment where she wrote in her journal how he, and Levin does this with Kitty, wrote out these letters and then asked her to interpret what they meant for him. And she was able to do it. So that's actually another thing where he took immediately from. But like the Rostovs and the Bokonskis and the Bezahovs, they're all, they're all based on these people that he knew from these families. And Kitty and Natasha are both based on Sophia. 
And so they would get married and she was both disgusted and terrified of him, but attracted to him. And he was both uninterested in her, but attracted to her as well. Recipe for success. Yeah, right there, there you go. So they had a wonderful marriage. <laughs> <laughs> it was during this period, right after he got married, that he began to think about war and peace. And like he had already through the 50s been thinking about having this book on the Decemberists, but he begins to write it in the early 60s. Then by the time he's 35, it's when he really starts to seriously write it. Even though he likes to kind of give them, a, he liked later on to give the mythology of himself as having just written and not really revising much. Apparently, Sophia gathered like 12 boxfuls of his notes and changes that you can still go see in like the Moscow library. Some people, she and her brother suggest that he went like through seven rewrites of it. Whoa. There are like seven versions. And so like in one version, Prince Andre wasn't going to have something happen to him that happened, but then in the end realized that for his friend's benefit, he should still give up Natasha. <laughs> and so you see these changes. So he dies. And so Maybe. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> he wasn't going to buy that new sword. Yeah. Yeah. He wasn't going to buy that new sword. He wasn't going to go off on adventures with Reepicheep. Right. And so, but you see these changes and adaptations to the characters. And as he gets into the story, as we saw with Anna Karenina, things change as the characters demand that they change and as the events demand that they change. So it's more realistic. He would begin to write it. He would actually read it to his family, get very enthusiastic. But at this time, he also found a good publisher. I can find his name. It probably is helpful to know his name because it's fun the fact that he had this publisher. This is the same publisher who would at the same time publish Crime and Punishment. So he was very much like that one guy who, the editor of Genius. Oh, uh, Maxwell Perkins. Yeah, he was like the editor of Genius, but for the Russians. Katkov. Katkov was his name. Katkov. He would begin to publish War and Peace serially, kind of like a Dickens novel mm -hmm. at first. But then his wife actually said, no, there's more value in the book sales than there are in the serial publications. Because once the serials are gone, who's going to buy it anymore? Do I remember reading somewhere that Crime and Punishment, War and Peace were initially serialized in the same magazine at the same time? Say what? That they were in the same magazine at the same time? Yeah, were they serialized? Do I remember reading they were serialized in the same magazine at the same yeah, time? Yeah, I mean, they were both under CAC. Yeah. And so he was publishing them alongside one another. And so I'm not sure if they published in the same, I'll look that up. That'd be interesting. But I know that they were at least under the same editor. Yes. Tolstoy's novel, War and Peace, was being serialized in the Russian Messenger at the same time as Crime and Punishment, which would go. have been January and the January and February issues of the well, Russian Messenger. I don't believe that's a fact that this guy mentions for whatever <laughs> oh, reason. That's too interesting. Busy, too busy. But yeah, so it helps you realize that, I mean, this is the literary world and that's the last thing we're going to get into is kind of the literary world of Russia at the time and Europe in general. But so that gets, and it becomes a hit. People see themselves in these characters. They realize this, this is like the great patriotic book of Russia. But then you also have some of the critics who were confused by it. A lot of people said, well, this isn't a novel. And they were very, they think some people said it works despite itself. Is what a lot of the people said. It's like, this isn't a novel, but it works despite itself. But that's just, most people now, most critics now think that that's just the phenomenon of people not knowing how to understand a great work of art when it first appears, especially mm -hmm. if it's so different as this thing is. Mm -hmm. I mean, because there's no doubt about it. Um, he, in fact, in our books, did you guys read the epilogue? I started it. I didn't get a chance to finish Where he actually talks about what this is. Yeah, he says, it's not a novel. He says, not a novel. It's still less an epic poem, still less a historical chronicle. <laughs> and so that kind of gets us into what is war and peace and how does his craft create this? Well, as we've seen, Tolstoy was obsessed with these big philosophical movements, these ideas, and... Well, one other th important fact is that given the fact that he was a count, 
he had a lot of free time on his hand as well to write mm -hmm. this sort of thing. <laughs> uh, I mean, he could either go out and he could try to reform the education for his serfs, or he could talk to his wife, or he could write a book. Those are like the opera. Th those were the or options to him. Go party. Or he could go party. And so he chose to write War and Peace from 1865 to 1869. There you go. So there we go. Good That's choice. why we have War and Peace. Glad he did. Other interesting fact is that War and Peace is before Anna Karenina. Okay. Even I... though it seems like it should be after in some ways. No, that makes sense. It does. I, I, mean, it, I kept getting it confused. I get it confused all the time too. It just seems like this is the work before you go crazy. Does that make sense? But then actually remembering Anna Karenina, Levin's big going crazy at the end is kind of the work mm -hmm. you do before you go crazy. So yeah. you, see, you see him going crazy along with Levin. Well, there's also, uh, I feel like there's a, for his genius and maybe superior a novel War and Peace is, there's a maturation in craft that you see in Anna Karenina. Mm-hmm both with having a little bit more driving of a plot and also with just how sparingly and effectively he uses some of his best tricks in Anna Karenina. Yeah. I don't know if that's... It'd be interesting to go back to Anna Karenina. You'd agree with that, but... I would. I'm thinking, though, let's talk about that next episode. Okay. Because that'll be a good thing to talk about. We'll pick it up at the beginning of next episode. No, yeah, I'd, I'd, I actually agree with the majority of that, too. It's, yeah, it's fascinating to think, think of these two things together. What you see is his immense capacity. So one person, Pushkin, or not Pushkin, um, I think Babel said about him that to read, if the world could write, it would write like Tolstoy. Hmm. And that's kind of what you see with him is this immense capacity, for ever, apparently ever since he was young, to just observe and to see things not differently than anyone else, but just very Better. clearly. Yeah, to see what he sees. And so I, I posted on our Instagram a quote by this guy saying that to read Tolstoy is to like finally not see through the smudged window anymore, but mm -hmm. to be on the other side or something like that. That is what it's like. I mean, a lot of this is just like this crisp reality to it. So it's some of my favorite Christmas chapters are when Nikolai goes out in the Troika with Sonia. Oh, yeah. oh that's wonderful. Pretty awesome. And you have the, uh, the mummers and all that going mm -hmm. to these houses. It's amazing. It's like nobody captures the feeling of Christmas and the excitement for young people of Christmas as he does there. The crisp snow, the sound of it. The feel of it on your skin, going to these houses. The just suddenly festivity. I'm in love with this woman I happen to be with, yeah. just because she's. It's just happy. Yeah, yeah but it's, it's it, like he plants a sense memory. It's like yeah. it's like the Matrix downloading, you know, a a thing into Trinity's head or something. It's like I've I've lived that moment. I mean, yeah, I know that sounds like hyperbole, but Tolstoy's the only author that I think I would even. There are a lot of sense that. memories that I have that may not be mine, but maybe Tolstoy's. Mm -hmm. And he kind of did plant them there because I've yeah. read him. For so long. The hunting scene and Anna Karenina. Well, they, they well even the hunting, hunting scene scenes. with Nikolai yeah. in this. Yep. It's amazing. Yep. Just the vividness of it. Mm. And a lot of it goes a bit from his descriptions. Like when he had that one line where he said drops dripped. Right? Stuff like that. You can just hear it. You can feel it. And it just makes you feel like you're there. And there's, um, it's a difficult craft to do, but he, that's what he was a master of. His characters do seem psychologically real. Mm-hmm. But his big distinction between him and Dostoevsky is that he doesn't go into like the deep, deep, deep psychology that Dostoevsky goes into. But you still feel like he has just a stronger grasp, if not a stronger grasp on human intentions and human reality than Dostoevsky does. Like why people do the things they do. Why people are the way they are. There are no well, characters. Dostoevsky goes so deep, 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 <coughs> deep that he ends up being wrong because people really aren't that deep. Yeah. And yes. That's what Tolstoy, Tolstoy is. Well, I think one of the master one of the wonderful things about Tolstoy that I'm sure we'll talk about a lot one of the best things is that he is willing to allow his without being mean to them or judging them like Jane Austen might or somebody <laughs> like that 
or satirizing them. He's al- he's al- he allows his characters to be as deep or shallow as they, as they would, would be. be. And it's complicated. Too. A Natasha or a Sonia at and that age. And as deep and shallow is, in any given moment that they would be. Yeah. Because of what's going on around them. Somebody who would normally be with it in a moment understands nothing that's being said right now right. because of this other thing that's going on. Someone yep. who's never with it suddenly has a flash of insight. It's exactly yeah. like life. Yeah. And he gets all the little weird quirks we have too. Mm-hmm. So like Andre and Pierre both like say, if this thing happens, then this thing that I'm waiting on is going to happen. Yeah. You know how silly that can be. Oh like, yeah. yeah. But everybody like, does it. If yeah. in oh, the yeah. next Her. minute I get a phone call, that means that, means that, that she's going to fall She'll, she'll go me. out with me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, we've all done that. And he does that like twice and you're like, yeah. It never feels like he's striving for effect. Like it's not a quirky character indie movie kind of. It all feels inevitable. Like, of course, that's what this guy would do or be thinking in this moment. It's not that this person is quirky, like the way that an indie movie character is quirky. It's just that they're, we all have quirks. Right. Yeah. Like even Dolokhov, as much as you're supposed to hate him, especially when it happens later, uh, when he admits to loving his mother, you're like, okay. Yeah. I, I see that. That's mm-hmm. fine. But it doesn't feel like, oh, you thought Dolokhov was bad. Now he's good. It feels like, oh, here's another photograph of, that I captured of Dolokhov. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> There's that mastery that he has in his realism. A lot of it comes from his influences. Lawrence Stern, he was also a big reader of, uh, so apparently there was Dickens fever in Russia at the time. There you go. With especially Dombey and Sons and David Copperfield. And uh, Tolstoy later in his life would say that David Copperfield was his favorite novel and had influenced him the most. And the one thing that you, the one thing I can say about David Copperfield is that sort of sense memory, like sure. there are things in David Copperfield that I remember distinctly as though they're my own memories. Mm-hmm. And so Dickens had that kind of ability too. And you can see that influence that Dickens must've had over Tolstoy that would have driven him towards this kind of writing as opposed to whatever Dostoevsky came up, that sort of intense, moody, brooding, s- navel gazing psychology. Mm-hmm that um, I think distinguishes Dostoevsky and which is maybe f- unfairly because there are moments in Brothers Karamazov that are beautiful and wonderful, but at least that it, it attracts kind of like Fight Club, that kind of guy, mm-hmm. that, kind of, that kind of reading. Mm-hmm. So then just to kind of put him where he was in history, and this, this was written in the 1860s and this was kind of the high point of Russian novel culture. You had Turgenev who was writing before that, but you had um, Tolstoy and Dostoevsky were in the height of their careers. This is what kind of established Tolstoy's the great Russian writer. Quickly after them, you would have Chekhov, who we've also read. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this was the high point of Russian culture, Russian literature, and it should make sense as to why, because you had this fierce identity of what it meant to be Russian because of the established things that had happened with the December uprisings, but also with the, this, the Crimean War and the offense that that brought to them, the invasion of Napoleon. So, you know, it felt like this is what it meant to be a Russian. But at the same time, you had all this European culture bringing French influences, British influences, and so that they could be a part of the great conversation mm-hmm. that was happening. Who doesn't want to be part of that? Yeah, who doesn't want to be a part of that? And so you would have the influences coming over as things were happening with the novel and things were changing, like with Dickens, but with also with uh, Victor Hugo, these guys, he would, he would be able to have access to those writers. He was heavily influenced by Rousseau, surprise, surprise, <laughs> and his idea of the noble savage and all these influences would come over and would help to have this sort of period that was like when Shakespeare wrote his plays. The highlight, the high watermark of Russian literature. His exact moment in the 1860s when you would have the two great writers who still to this day people look at as the great geniuses of Russian literature. Tolstoy and uh, Dostoevsky. Yeah. Which we're reading that yeah. this year. Oh, yeah. 
So we're going to begin our year with Tolstoy and end our year with Dostoevsky, from Tolstoy to Dostoevsky. Mm -hmm. So we have that, and it seems like maybe it's a coincidence, but really, if you look at the time, a lot of the great works were being written then. In America, Moby Dick was in the 1850s. Uh, Dickens was in the height of his career in the 1850s and 60s. So that just was like a high benchmark for the novel, those two decades, 50s and 60s. And so... Anything happening in French literature? Yeah, you would have had... Um, When's Flaubert? Pretty sure Flaubert would have been during this time. Yeah, I mean, he would have been writing in the 18... So he was born in 1821. He was a contemporary. So you had Flaubert. Um, pretty sure Stenthal would have been a contemporary. Just verify that for you. Yeah, it'd have been a little bit earlier, but Stenthal would have been right at the end of his career when Tolstoy was a young man, and Hugo would have been around the same time. So, uh, Madame Bovary was actually being written in 1850. Yep, one of the other greats. So Flaubert would have been at the height of his career, and yeah, uh, so Victor Hugo a little bit before those guys, but still he would have been still in his career. So he was born in the early 1800s, but he done, didn't die until 1885. And so, how about Jules Verne? He'd have been a little. <laughs> Wasn't he French? Yeah, he was French, yeah. He would have been a little Doesn't bit... Doesn't really quite count as... Actually, he was born the exact same year as Tolstoy, 1828. So he was a contemporary. I would always fancied him as a little bit later. Yeah, he was right there along with Tolstoy. Jules Verne? Yeah. The two greats. <laughs> two greats, so... But yeah, so French literature was in its height. I mean, you would have been a little bit out of... Goethe was a little bit before this, but... So German literature was already... I don't know about that Goethe. Yeah, German literature is weird. Anyways. German literature is weird. Wagner would have been in his heyday. And Nietzsche too. So you there you go. Weird philosophies and yeah. the idea of the Ubermensch coming out of that country. That's about what they gave. That's what they gave to the 1800s. Thanks. Yeah. Weird operas and... Thanks, Germans. Weird philosophy. Yeah. I'm going to go with the Russians and the French and the English and yeah. the Americans. And so, yeah, but this, just the point being that this was a rich period in literary history. And so... The richest? I Right up there with yeah. Elizabethan England, maybe? And yeah, I think it is one of the richest moments in history. So, as far as literature goes. There you go. And so, Tolstoy's right in the middle of it. And that's all I got. Good man. Yeah. Well, I've got donors that we need to shout out. We'll be back next week with many more thoughts on war and probably some thoughts on peace. Probably. Guys, why don't you say the word that you think from war and peace is most associated with this person. Like war or peace? That's what I was going to do. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> make of make of my instructions what you will. <laughs> Jake Robert and Ron of the Lovebirds. Peace. The Artful Anthony Dodger. And. Little Anthony Cigar Store. War. The Immortal Chelsea E. Peace. Jimmy Beeman, Little Annie Oakley. War. Lily of the Valley. Peace. And Ernest of the Lovebirds. Uh, and. The Keith Master. And <laughs> David's Mighty Men Trucking. War. Yeah. John and Jill and Little Baby Max. War. Jay and Katie, who are cold and love cheese and also see us loose, including till we have faces. Oh, this is war. <laughs> oh, yeah. Very, they, they better hope so. Very Princess of Wonder and Happiness, Mother Beth. Peace. Consul Prime Adam. War. Jeremy the Dark Hooded Lord of Death. Peace. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Nathan, not me. War. Maya! Maya! War. Ryan the Red Avenger and Judith of the Ladies of Justice. Peace. Danny the Dude. Danny the Dude. Oh, and. <laughs> DJ Sammy G. Wicca, Peace. Wicca. Benny and Danny Tiberius. Uh, war, because they sound like Romans. Yeah, Tiberius is a very warlike name. Eric and Catherine from Yawn the Window Breaks. Peace. Hey, it was good to meet you. Or see you again, Dan, uh, Ben Tiberius. Yeah, it was. They came down to the sing-along. They did. It's great it to see nice. you. Up. So, they came all, up to the sing-along. Always nice to see him. <laughs> Professor and Lady X. Uh, war. Lavender's green, Dylan, 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 Dylan lavender's blue. Dylan, Dylan, Lavender's green, Dylan, 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 I love you too. Peace. No constrictor? 
A war, man. Marichipa. Peace. The Varen Fragment Maiden Chloe. Peace. Six pack Zach with a mean attack and Catherine with a knack for laying down the smack. Uh, war. Yeah, I was going to say. Anthony, who is cold and hates life, liberty, and the pursuit of cheese. And <laughs> none, of our, none of our donors has quite a, as much of a passive-aggressive name <laughs> as Anthony, but we love you, Anthony. Jiu-Jitsu Jeffrey, the Texas Ranger. War. Rachel. 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 Peace. Leopard Tank Thomas. War. Midnight Ninja Ellen. Peace. <laughs> Queen Congetta. Peace. Return of the Jedediah. War. Star Wars, to be exact. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and a hearty bookening welcoming welcome really? to our first donor of the new year. Hey. Jay. Hey, Jay. Hey, what's up, Jay? I thought you were going to- Oh, Jay. I will. I will. I'm going to call him Jay of Wrath and Ruin. Jay of Wrath and Ruin. Definitely a warlike name. Yes. Jay of Wrath. Considered things like Jay Not of- Rack and Ruin, but Wrath and Ruin. We could do Rack and Ruin, but I'm thinking Wrath and Ruin. Wrath and I Ruin. Like Wrath and Ruin. Wrath and Ruin. Yeah. Uh, okay. We'll be back next week. More War and Peace. Yay. Yay. Booking written, produced, other things. Go to patreon.com forward slash the booking to support us. Also, get the word out about the show. Just uh, if you can't support us, you can still support us by telling people about the show. Choose an episode that you like and tell people about it. Right, Brandon? That's right. Right, Jake? Oh, yeah. Okay. Bye. Bye. Bye.